This is the last of three sermons on the lives of Cain and Abel. We're punctuating our way through Romans. We're taking Romans in sections with application series uh, between each section. So next week, we'll be back to Romans. That series will be called Cruciformed, Why the Doctrine of Grace Matters. I'm going to try to whistle that out. The last one. And it'll be Romans chapters 6 through 8. And that'll be our third Romans series. But Cain and Abel, one more time today. There are stories in Genesis 4, but we've turned to Hebrews this morning to two of five places in the New Testament where Abel is remembered. Four of these by name. The one there where Abel's remembered not named is in 1 John. But these two times in Hebrews that John just read for us, Hebrews 11.4 and 12.24 are texts. And then you also get Abel twice in the New Testament in the Gospels. Matthew and Luke record the time Jesus invoked Abel by name in confronting the religious authorities who wanted Jesus dead because their self-righteousness operated a lot like Cain's did. We know the story. We've been in it a couple weeks. Abel died at the hand of his older brother, Genesis 4. Jesus died at the hands of those who should have been brothers to him. Hebrews 11.4 says Abel died the first martyr. The word from which we get martyr is embedded in here. He was killed because of his believing faith. That's what Cain was reacting to in effect. That God regarded, that's the word we saw in Genesis 4 last week, God regarded, that is, he accepted the sacrifice Abel offered in believing faith and had no regard, not so much for Cain's sacrifice, because later on the Old Testament specifies grain offerings and stuff from the ground. It was Cain's disbelief. It was God reading his heart and realizing what was really there. And he called Cain to repent. He gave Cain a second opportunity for acceptance, to know the grace of God and experience that. But Cain would not. Instead, what Cain did, we talked about this last week, he gave full resentments, uh, full expression of his resentments, his anger at God. All anger, if it stays characteristic of us, at some point turns Godward and his envy at his brother Abel. That was our focus last week. And we, from that, looked at how Cain shows us our need for Jesus, that only Jesus' blood can put out that fire in us. If we're inflamed by envy, that that anger that can consume us when comparison doesn't go our way, if we build an identity out of comparison. So today we're going to focus on the younger brother, Abel. There's not as much about him. More is about Cain in the text of Genesis 4. But when you get to the New Testament, the way that Abel is remembered is very Jesus-like. John read it, Hebrews 12, 24, that Jesus' blood speaks a better word to us than Abel's blood did. And one author thinking on this put it this way, and and I found her uh, reflection on this to be worth a, a much deeper reflection. She writes, the Messiah came not to a purified and enlightened world spiritually prepared for his arrival, but rather to a humanity no nearer to its original goodness than on the day Cain murdered his brother Abel. Indeed, the barbarity of crucifixion that happened to Jesus reveals precisely this diagnosis. From beginning to end, the Holy Scriptures testify that the predicament of fallen humanity 
is so serious, so grave, so permanent from within that nothing short of divine intervention by blood can rectify this. Close quote. Both brothers, Cain and Abel, both of them show us our need for the divine intervention of Jesus by blood. And each one shows us, each brother shows us this, each in a primary way. One having to do with identity, that's Cain, the other with security, this is Abel. We talked last week in reference to Cain about constructing our identity from comparisons, how we're really good at this. We construct our identity out of comparisons with others more so than we construct our identity out of God's provision to us, God's redemption of us in Christ. If Cain shows us what we need Jesus to do in and for our identity, Abel shows us our need for Jesus in the consideration of our security. Abel was accepted by God. What does Hebrews 11, 4 say as you're looking at that verse? Verse 4 in Hebrews 11. It says he was commended as righteous. And it doesn't personally get better for us with God than that. And yet, was he safe? No. He was murdered. Abel wasn't safe. But he was secure. And in this vein, we're going to consider two things this morning, as we often do. Just two things. How in Jesus we get security more than safety. And then how in Jesus we get a security that suffering cannot take away. A security that suffering cannot kill. Two things today from Abel's life. Abel shows us our need for Jesus. His blood takes us to Jesus' blood. This writer of Hebrews says, chapter 12, verse 24, Abel was righteous like Jesus was righteous, not in exactly the same way in that Abel was never sinless, but Abel was like Jesus in that he died faithful. And so from Abel's life, we consider our need for Jesus in that two things. We need security more than safety. And we get a security that suffering cannot take away in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us. So let's talk this out. Last week it was identity. This week it's security. Last week we talked about identity as a construction, something we construct for ourselves. Well, like identity, security is also something we construct. But for believers, both are faith involved. For the person who's met Jesus Christ has a relationship with God through Jesus. Security and identity are both faith involved. Now, again, just so you understand, we didn't just grasp at Cain and Abel out of air. We're looking at Cain and Abel to apply what we learned about why faith matters in Romans chapters 4 and 5. Faith should be involved. Faith is the, is the ground of our identity And our security, how we construct our identity and security. But if our default mode, and this is often the case, living in the times in which we live, the the cultural influence that we all are part of, if our default mode is to construct our identity out of comparisons, we often construct our security out of our achievements. Think about this. The more accomplished people are, the less at risk they feel of their life being intruded upon by whatever it is they don't want. 
The more my achievements, my credentials, the more I believe I should be able to keep that, whatever that is, out, away. This is why I live in the neighborhood I live in, why I've gone to the schools I went to, even why I purchased the car that I purchased. Because I looked it up online to see what its crash safety rating was. We think that we have this kind of control that the more accomplished people are, the more we can keep our life from being intruded upon by whatever it is we don't want. And this is why people who do well for themselves have a harder time with suffering. Now, suffering is hard on us all. I'm not saying it's easier for some and harder for for others. It's, It's hard for all of us. No one takes suffering easily. But the more you mean to your life, that is to say, the more praise and acclaim you receive from others, the more you're told how invaluable you are to the organization, the greater your education, your economics, your social standing, the more you've been able to arrange your life like you want it to be. If or when suffering intrudes, it can undo you if you've actually made your life about safety and you don't have a security that suffering cannot take away. Whatever damage sufferings of various kinds inflict, and they do damage, if suffering sweeps you up such that you no longer will go with God or others who belong to him because of the suffering. You check out because of it. You lay down because of it. What this says is that you are in need of believing this better word. Jesus speaks to us through his blood. The securing word Jesus' blood speaks to us is a better word than we speak to ourselves about our own security, which is kind of like, you know, if I've got my life together, if I'm a good person, I'm safe. Let's take these two points. First, in Jesus, we get security more than safety. And I know that sounds like a downer because everybody wants safety. And I'm not saying we give this up. What I'm saying is security is the necessary have, not safety. Security is the necessary have, not safety. Now, full disclosure, as I try to explain this, one of our two dogs is named Abel. All right. Got an Abel in the family. And appropriately enough, he is a security breed. Meaning a dog people don't mess with. Abel is a pit bull. They guard junkyards and apparently pastors' houses now out in Carville. There's a story behind how he came into our possession. I won't tell that story, but we've had him since he was a tiny pup. He started out as our grand dog. Some of you have known this route. And became our dog alongside our little schnoodle, who's named Cal. Not Cain, but Cal. We have Cal and Abel. That we had a schnoodle tells you where we were residing in the caninosphere before Abel. His breed is associated with security. People are less inclined to mess with you when you have a pit bull. Now, that's not why we got him. But as we prepared to move in June, kind of a funny story, at least funny to me. I was arranging the move with a, with a moving company. And they said, um, after we arranged for all the physical action of the, the move, the, the agent said, look, I'm going to have our concierge uh, call you 
to uh, handle your utility transfers. And I said, well, it's a local move. There's only one. I'm just changing water from one municipality to the other. It's really not necessary, but very insistent. It's free. Seem to really want to do this to me, you know, for me. So moments later, I get a call from the concierge in Dallas who says, well, I see here you only have, you know, one utility to transfer over. Yes, that's what I try to tell the agent. It's a local move. But then the real nature of the call emerged. Ah, the reason it went to the concierge is the moving company's partnership with the security company. The concierge wanted to sell me their monitoring service. And so uh, I listened to the pitch. I considered it. I politely declined. He doubled back around, a little more pressure. I declined again. I said, I don't really think I need it. And he expressed genuine surprise at this and asked, how come you don't think you need a security service? And I said, well, the simple answer is because I have a pit bull. (laughs) And he laughed and said, I have one too. And now we're just two pit bull buddies uh, on the phone talking about how deep their barks are and their athleticism and the intimidation factor. But, of course, they're really sweethearts. And and then he agreed with me. And he goes, you know, you really you don't really, you don't need our monitoring service with Abel in the house. He said that. Hope I don't get him in trouble with his company. In Christ, it is necessary that we be secure. Necessary. Salvation gives us this. The integrity of who God has promised to be for us in Jesus is tied up in securing us in Christ. Faith leads us to the secure keeping of God. But that securing is not the same thing as safety. And don't hear me telling you, don't hear me telling you, you know, stop asking God to keep you safe. I'm not going to go there with you. We all ask God for safekeeping as we live our daily lives. And we are grateful for the thousands of ways he does this for us over the course of our lifetimes, ways we don't even know. My daughter Holly is uh, driving home. She worked at a camp down in Mississippi all summer. And she's got this uh, long drive home. And, and I say, Lord, keep her safe. When any of our kids are, are driving long distances, Lord, keep, keep them, pray that for short distances too. You just can't keep up with all the short distances. Please keep them safe. If they pick up their phone, knock it out of their hand. You know, right? We're all asking God for safety. Please do continue to ask Him for safety. You can and you should. But we look at the Cain and Abel story and we realize Abel wasn't safe. Even though Abel was accepted by God. But Abel's security did not translate into safety. Not not with a brother like Cain whose slow burn envy is consuming him. We look at the Jesus story and we see the same thing. Jesus wasn't safe. Not in Israel of old. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. That's the testimony of Scripture. Cain's envious anger turned him to murdering his brother Abel, Genesis 4. The Pharisees do the same to Jesus. Why? Envy, anger, control, fear. I'll just throw this uh, in. The person who stays afraid long enough can turn angry. The person who stays afraid long enough can turn angry. Anger can express deep resentment, but it can also express deep insecurity. 
Now, we don't see fear in Abel. I mean, there's nothing in the text that says he feared Cain. Maybe he did. We don't know. We don't see any insecurity in Abel. But we do find fear and insecurity in ourselves at times. Maybe some of us find this often. It was even in Sheriff Bell, No Country for Old Men. Some of you like that story. The great line, I wake up sometimes way in the night and I know as certain as death there ain't nothing short of the second coming of Christ that can slow this train. This train, in Sheriff Bell's words, is freighted down with all our fears. But what happens when you see your fear? It shows you your need, your need for Jesus. When we see our fear... When we see our insecurity, we again see how we need Jesus. Not just his second coming, we need his first. Because what we see is we need to believe the better word his blood speaks to us. Hebrews 12, 24, look at it again. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. His blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How so? What does the blood of Jesus speak to us of? It speaks to us of our way of acceptance with God. His accomplishments, Jesus' accomplishments on our behalf. There is one and only secure way with God. And it's through Jesus' blood as a necessity it requires this. His blood speaks to us of of His faithfulness to us. And His faithfulness is where we anchor our security in life. We don't anchor it in our faith, in having enough faith. I spoke to this a little bit in the first Cain and Abel message two weeks ago. I return to it now. If you'll look down in verse 6 of chapter 11, Hebrews 11, verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, Him is God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and He rewards those who seek Him. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. We read this as trying to muster enough faith in order to please God. But that's just, that, that just takes you to more insecurity, doesn't it? I mean, the more faith you try to muster, the more you try to prove, the more you try to summon within all this faith, you try to convince yourself, have enough faith, it actually contributes to a sense of insecurity. We think we have to have faith in our faith. We wouldn't put it that way, but in actual practice, that's what's happening when we're trying to convince ourselves we really believe God. We're trying to have faith in our faith. Is it good enough? Is it deep enough? Now, we can all use more growth in faith, but that's not where we anchor. It's not in our faith. It's in the author and finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus himself. This is really a key distinction. Is your faith based on your power to to muster enough of it up? Or is it based on who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for you? And that gives you confidence in the character and the purposes of God working in and through your life. I told you a couple Sundays ago about this, that faith is not about mustering something up from within ourselves in order to show God and everyone else how serious we are. Nor do we have faith so that God will keep us safe on all our highways and byways of life. Faith is about believing the better word the blood of Jesus speaks to us. 
And, and all my basis for confidence with God, all my basis for a, a draw to His purposes, all of my identity, all of my security is tied up in what Jesus has done for us. When, when the Hebrews writer says, without faith it's impossible to please God, without faith it's impossible to please God because it's impossible to please God without Jesus. That's the point. Our faith is about Him. What the gospel says to us is God gives us something in Jesus he will not take back. God makes promises that he binds himself to. He makes promises to us in Jesus he will not revoke. The better word of Jesus' blood poured out for us is no matter what happens to us in the here and now, no matter what goes wrong, the thing that must go right if I'm to have any hope has in the accomplishment of Jesus on my behalf. And that's really good news. That's securing. This takes us to the second consideration. How in Jesus we get a security that suffering cannot kill. Look at what happened to Abel. He was commended as righteous, yet was murdered. He did it right. And yet lost his life the way he did. How can God let that happen to someone like Abel? Why didn't God prevent Cain from killing him? Shouldn't being commended as righteous ensure against things like that happening to any of us? That's what we think. Why? Because we like the delusion. It's, it's, I heard somebody once call it comforting delusions. They're delusions, but we're comforted by them. And the greatest is that we're in control. We like the comforting delusion that we are in control and that we can therefore prevent our suffering. And the more we construct our security in life out of our achievements, the more prone we are to think this way. I mean, we, we can even do this relationally. Uh, we can even turn love into a kind of insulation. If, if, if I can just love that person, if that person can just love me, I'll never suffer. Get married and test that dynamic, okay? <laughs> All those laughing know. I, I'm reading a, a memoir right now by um, a man who tells of his honeymoon, uh, how the day after the wedding night, they're in Colorado, I think, because they're looking at, at snow-capped peaks, they're driving someplace they're going to go, and, and they're driving in the, in the brand new car the, the groom's mother uh, gave as a, as, a, as a wedding gift. And he says his, his brand new bride, he, he, she, he hears her sigh deeply, and she looks out the window at this beautiful vista in this brand new car, brand new husband, and she says, I thought you said I would be happy. And he said he was absolutely unprepared for her sadness because his assumption had been when we love each other, it will prevent that. And he said the only thing I failed to factor was that she was a human being. If this person loves me, if this person would just love me, I'll never suffer. But it's the people we love the most in the closest proximity to us who know us the best whom we hurt the deepest. And take none of that as me being any kind of cynical about marriage or family. I, I speak as one quite happy in my marriage, grateful. 
But finding your soulmate does not insulate you from suffering, even suffering from them. Because when you find your soulmate, you haven't found your Savior. You've just found your soulmate. There's only one Savior. You might feel secure having good investments, great kids, a fine house, quality friends. All that is good. And there is an experience of security in that until one or more of those things falters. Until one or more of those things is removed. Until one or more of those things caves in. If they do, they may not. They may not for you. Thank God for that. But if they do, thank God for that too. It'll be a lot harder too. But you're not thanking him that the thing has fallen through. You're thanking him for what he will show you of himself in the midst of that. If that thing you can't imagine materializes, that, that just the thought of it makes you feel nervous and, and insecure. If it happens and you're completely done by it, whatever it is. If you're undone by it, you've heard the better word Jesus speaks to you by his blood through his gospel. But have you built on it? Has the gospel drilled down in you? Doesn't make us impervious to pain when it does. It doesn't mean that suffering will come and I'll just glide through it because, you know, I'm not really suffering. I'm too content in Jesus. No, it doesn't work like that for any of us. I, I suspicion the person with, with whom that, that works in. <laughs> Eli Morris said uh, over at Hope said uh, a while back, he said, you know, you used to wonder about the person who goes to counseling. Now you wonder about the person who doesn't go to counseling. Because you know? <laughs> we're all dealing with something. We can put a measure of, of security in our achievements. We do. It, it, but it's just so easy for us to build our lives there and having everything just so. But we've got to have a security of life that suffering can't take away. It can touch it. It can beat it up. It can, it can squeeze it. It can't take it away. It can't kill it. Let me put it this way. You can have many sources of security in life, but only one source of security of life. Many sources of security in life, from your pit bull to your portfolio. But you can have only one security of life. This is the better word that the blood of Jesus speaks to us. We can put a measure of security in our achievements. We do. We're accomplished people. We have many securities in life through what we have and who we know and and where we are, etc. and so on. And all of that is God-given and, and allowed and, and directed by Him. But, but those many things, they're not the one thing. And so if we construct our security out of our life achievements, primarily when something goes wrong, and it will at some point, when suffering intrudes, we'll fall apart. We won't just grieve. We won't just lament. We'll, we'll, we'll lose something of, of God. We'll lose something of Christian fellowship. We'll come undone at the seams in a way that doesn't mean we're no longer put together. It means that somehow our belief is off. But if we build our security of life on Jesus' achievements for us. We're not going to skate through. We're not going to come out uh, 
un, untouched by, by suffering, but we get an access to stability in the middle of things falling apart. And things are still falling apart, and that doesn't feel good. But even so, we know that the ground's not going to open up and swallow us. We get a security that suffering cannot take away. This is the better word that the blood of Jesus speaks to us. And our acceptance by God is security of life. This is what our faith is about. Suffering can beat on this, but it can't kill it because Jesus lives and because Jesus actively loves you and me. The Lord says, find what you're looking for in me. I'm the love behind every love you've gone searching for. I'm the friendship behind every friendship you've ever wanted. I'm the security behind everything you've worked so hard to achieve. I'm the better word behind every good word you've heard in your life. It's the Lord Jesus. Abel shows us our need of him in securing us. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And then we'll sing something, I believe. We we will. And then we'll be dismissed by benediction. Father, we ask you for help in this. It is most easy for us to take the I will do it myself posture when it comes to our security. It's just an area, Lord, where um, our trust is much more theoretical. And, Lord, we don't always know what this looks like practically on the ground. A lot of us are going through things today that we'd rather not, we don't want. And some of us are going to go through things before this year is over, before this decade concludes, before this life is passed that we don't want. But even so... Even though we would rather you protect us from that, we'd rather you keep us safe from all those things that we don't want. If you allow them, and even if you send them, Lord, we want to look to you. We want our reflex to be faith, which is not a denial of the pain. It shows up as lament, faith does often, and crying out to you how much longer And what now, O Lord? But as we look out over the instability of our world, even our own lives, for some of us in our own home, we we need to listen to the better word that the blood of Jesus speaks to us and that this is not just words on a page. It's a word that gets into our heart. It gets into the motivational structures of, of how we live our life. Lord, help us in this because we, we're here today because we want to hear a word from you. And I pray in hearing this word from Hebrews, you will apply it to us. As you know, it should be animated and look in our lives. Lord, thank you for being patient with us. We'll go from here, some of us thinking, oh, I've got to do this and that and the other, and you're patient, you're kind. Thank you for that. You won't be mocked, but you're gracious with us, and we're grateful for that grace that we turn our attention to for the next few weeks as we go back to Romans.
And we look at what it means to be cruciformed, to be shaped by the cross, that this is what the grace, your grace, the grace of God teaches us about what it is to know Jesus. We thank you and pray in his name. Amen.